Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome to Making Data Simple. I hope everyone is healthy out there. Not so long ago, I took Expert Labs service delivery. And one of the major areas I've worked to influence is a focus on value selling. You know, clients want value. You know, think of it in terms of saving costs, revenue generation, risk mitigation, or market expansion. It's usually one of those four areas. By the way, the book that I recommend that I've read more than once, and I read it again as I took on this role, was The Challenger Cell. It's about teaching, tailoring, and taking control of a cell. And a person that I know that does that better than anybody else is the guest I have today is I.L. Steinberg. He's the Vice President of Worldwide Sales Data and AI. He embodies teaching, tailoring, and taking control. We're going to share some stories with you, I'm sure. Welcome, I.L. Hopefully you're healthy. You're playing by the rules. Uh, Everything's good. Everything's great, Al. Thanks for having me. The world is great by me. I love that introduction. It's music to my ears. The four types of value creation, uh, you, you said it very well. Uh, I, I've been an active listener. I, I've heard some of your past uh, speakers, uh, like Elise and a handful of other folks. So for me to be on this is, uh, is quite an honor. So th- thank you for having me. Well, I'm honored to have you. So I got to give you a compliment to start. Uh, we do have history. And I think the first time I met with you, now I may butcher this, so you can correct everything I say that's wrong here in just a moment. You were leading Natiza sales, and we'd go into different customers together. I think at the time, I was leading, this was before my development role. I've been you know, rotating around a little bit. I was leading, probably I think it was the VP of support. So we'd go in and meet with clients. And I have to say that uh, you and I would meet beforehand. We'd talk about whatever situation it is. And typically, I'm prepared to go in there, and it's always a, a good cop, bad cop type of thing, typically. I'm usually the bad cop. (laughs) It's just the way it was. But with you, we'd meet. I kid you not. You would take control of the the situation, go in and say, you know, here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. Look, I was just sitting in the room, a little for me to do. Unlike most other situations where I was doing most of the talking, you know, I learned a lot from you in those deals. So uh, that must be somewhere in there, your philosophy. And I'd like to talk about it because you are the challenger seller, man. Uh, Al, you're really kind. You know, I, I do remember a few specific meetings. I remember one down in the Baltimore, D.C. area. It was a tough situation. And I do remember going in and coming out with a really positive outcome. We could talk more about the philosophy and kind of the, the balance there, because I think there is a very specific balance of making sure that you're not coming off as annoying or over the line. But I think fair is fair. You know, the the way that I express it to some people is that, you know, everybody's got a, a role to do. And as long as you're doing right by people and you're focused on their outcomes, then, you know, everybody just wants to hear what's going to be best for them. And sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's hard. But, you know, I I think it all comes down to working with great people. I I joked as I was kind of talking to my wife about the session and how much history we have together and how excited I was for this. There was a time where you running support and me running the Natiza sales, I definitely would sleep better at night and I would enjoy myself more on weekends going out with friends and family, uh, knowing that you had the ship under control or your hand was on the wheel. So yeah, I, you know, everything comes around. I, I think there's definitely some truths in just doing the right thing, working with good people, doing what you say you're going to do. 
Thank you. And uh, we will get into philosophy, but I think there is something to be said. You know, I just, what comes down to life, it's pretty simple. It's just mean what you say, say what you mean, and do what you say. I know you got an economics degree. How do you get into IT and data? Why sales? Give us a little bit of your story, your background. I grew up a uh, son of two immigrants who came to the United States. So my name is Al Steinberg. It's pretty ethnic. I like to joke, being born in, and raised in the United States as a younger child, my mother's name is Nina, and if my mother happens to listen to this, which doesn't happen too often, <laughs> hi, mom. And my dad's name is Ruben, uh, so pretty ethnic, uh, you know, Ruben, Nina, Ayal, and I have an older brother named Steve, uh, which I always love because Steve is obviously an American name than where my parents originally are from. The reason I bring it up is because, you know, I, I really have two kind of dichotomies or two elements that I, I would say define my early years, uh, and that leads me to kind of the, the, your core question. The first is some of the immigrants who really value education and making sure that, you know, you're investing in yourself and that you work hard. And that's one prime kind of element of a cornerstone of me individually is no matter the successes that have come or uh, the opportunities that are presented myself, I always try to be the hardest working person in the room. The second thing is me and my wife have actually been together since she was 14. I was about 16 and we've been married or we've been together now for 20 something years. So majority of my life, she comes from a situation where honesty and doing the right thing is is critical. In fact, my, my wife, she has a strong personality. She she knows what she wants, and she will often say that you know if you're not going to do it right or if you're not going to do the right thing by people, it's not worth doing. And you know she's got some great friends that have been with her forever, and I think it's just a tribute to her as a person and her mother who really shaped her, invested in her. And I think those are the two dichotomies that make me a person, right? This hardworking ethic, doing right by people. Had a small business when we were teenagers, me and my good buddy, Brian, uh, we had a DJ company called ABC DJs, IL, Brian, AB, then we thought ABC DJs was going to fit into the phone book better at the time than, uh, than AB DJs. So we called ABC DJs, we started a DJ business, and we kind of got the bug of being an entrepreneur. That progressed into saying that, you know, it's, it's a lot more fun to run a business that has a tangible product as opposed to something that's a concept. Economics to me always made sense in the pursuit of efficiency or said differently, there's supply and demand curves as price and quantity kind of dissect or intersect with each other, things become more and less attractive. So that, that pursuit of efficiency and kind of finding that equilibrium from an economic perspective brought me into entrepreneurship and ultimately business. I ended up not going into finance, which was the typical path for most people in an economics degree. And instead, I went into a more entrepreneurial business that was a little bit more of a real-time job in retail. Uh, I had a, a quick pursuit in music, which was great, probably still one of my loves of my life. But going into retail, I had an opportunity to run a small business franchise within a much bigger company, really figure out how to buy things and sell things and what do people want. That transitioned to uh, a role where I was doing strategic planning and looking at numbers and looking at math and algorithms. And this is probably in the late 90s now, working with some great people for a lot of the retailers that are now unfortunately going through some tough times. But you know, a lot of the people that I work with back then are still within retail and stayed with it. For me, what became exciting was this opportunity to apply data and analytics into real world business decisions and at the time, like now it seems so basic and trite and, you know, everybody says, you know, AI and, you know, but 20 years ago, you know, everybody was still making decisions on gut feel and, you know, what, here's my 30 years of history and experience. Uh, 
but looking at certain types of business and saying, if I use data and then having that data aggregated and then apply analytics, regardless of what shape that is, you're going to come up with a better outcome. 20 years ago, people would burn you for witchcraft for saying that. So I think that was kind of my evolution. It was a constant idea of looking for efficiency, which came from economics, to driving into entrepreneurship, to ultimately leading me into enterprise software, which came uh, after that time. So retail, music, data and analytics, but where did the sales come in? So I actually got into enterprise software, not as a salesperson. My first opportunity came from Steve Levin, who gave me an opportunity with a Boston startup in 2000. And the CEO of the company named Scott Friend, he's now a, uh, a member or active managing partner at Bain Capital Ventures. Uh, so these two gave me the first break into enterprise software. It was a 17-person a company that was up in Cambridge. Probably majority of the people were PhDs in, in science and astrophysics. The handful of other people were business folks. Most of the people just being in Cambridge came from uh, the MIT and Harvard area. They hired me saying, hey, you got some retail experience. Why don't you join the startup? Because now that they were looking at demand forecasting and other complex retail things, they had the science figured out, but they needed someone who could understand the retail side of it. So I came in as a business consultant, kind of a uh, someone who after the deal was done, come in and implement the product. And then that, since we're a small company, that transitioned to a pre-sales role. I grew out the pre-sales function. The company's name was ProfitLogic. Uh, we ultimately got acquired by Oracle in 2005. So about a thousand percent growth, some fantastic people, John Hiddle, John Bible, Tim Andre, you know, some really fantastic giants, David Craig, that taught me a lot of the basic of value-based selling. A lot of those folks actually came from a company called I2 Solutions, which was a Dallas, uh, Texas-based company that probably pioneered the idea of value-based selling. So I was lucky and fortunate enough that when I came into enterprise software, the first experience I had were with people who were probably the pioneers of value-based selling. Then besides the PTC folks who came up with something called Medic, I would say I2 is arguably one of the best foundational places to learn value-based selling. So that's how I grew up in sales. When Oracle bought the company, I, I was a, a second-line uh, pre-sales leader, and I helped kind of integrate the team into the creation of Oracle's first business unit called the Oracle Retail business unit. I realized that pre-sales was my first love. I guess music was my first love. It's probably my second love. I said, you know, it'd be a good opportunity to learn how to be a salesperson. So I switched over to sales probably around 2005. I was an individual contributor for about two years. And then I've been a sales leader for the last 14 years or so. So you didn't finish the complete story. I know you came to IBM and then you left IBM and you came back. You got to give us that scenario a little bit. I'm not here to really tout IBM here to say, but there had to be a reason you came back. I found myself for the first 10 years, kind of that startup that I mentioned, ProfLogic, then Oracle Retail, and then another company that did price optimization called JDA, which bought a company called Manugistics. And they did price optimization across multiple industries, really focused on the analytics. 2008 came around. I just had my first son, my first child, who is my only son. I have two other girls. His name is Rafi. If he's going to listen to this, I'm going to at least give him the dangle that I mentioned their, their names in there. So my son Rafi came around. And at the time, stem cell was the big thing. Like There wasn't a complete clarity on exactly how you were going to use it. But at the time, the rage was if you were going to have a baby, you pay well, it was a decent amount of money, a couple thousand dollars, and they would harvest the stem cell with the idea that later in life as the 
uh, science and analytics got better, that they would be able to apply it against that stem cell and it could save your life or your kid's life or somebody else's in your family's life. So I, I thought that was a great analogy. What I found in the data and analytics side is my first 10 years was all about analytics, but companies were struggling with the data side of it, right? They still didn't, as good as the algorithms and the data scientists wasn't even a term back in 2007, 2008, companies were just starting to grow their data segments and they were starting to get unstructured data and starting to do things like sentiment and all these things that you know seem ancient now, but 13 years ago were just being born. I saw that and what you know one of my favorite quotes is from Warren Buffett who says, if you want to be successful, figure out where the industry is going and get there first and set up shop. And I probably butchered that quote. Somebody's, you know, if you Google, you probably see a, a variation of it. But I always thought of that concept, like where is this going? So with that concept of the stem cell, knowing that the future is all about analytics, but the inhibitor was the data, I thought it'd be a good idea to get into the data world. So I joined uh, IBM through or right around the time of the Natiz acquisition. Uh, the people that I hired, that hired me, the people that I came on f- with were Natiza folks, uh, but it was right during the time of Natiza being acquired by IBM. And for people who don't know Natiza, uh, hopefully, I'm guessing there might be some of you, the company was, first sale was in 2002, went public in 2009 and was acquired by $1.7 billion or something around that by IBM in 2010, 2011. So that's right around the time that I came, a lot of excitement around it. And that started a five-year journey all around embracing data and just getting deeper onto the uh, what we'd call the information architecture side of it. So great run at IBM. I love my time here. The people, that what we were doing on the product side, it was fantastic. What I saw at the end of that time was that the world was changing. And there was two major trends that were happening, open source and cloud, right? Now I'd probably add the third trend is analytics. But at the time, three years ago, that wasn't, or four years ago, that wasn't as clear as, as cloud and cloud and open source coming in. So I said, you know, I was really comfortable at IBM. I could have stayed forever. But I said, you know what, like I'm, I'd like to be able to go into a company, make a bigger impact. So I joined a, an open source company called DataStacks, which is the people behind Apache Cassandra. And they were doing okay, but kind of stagnating a bit. But I learned a ton. People like Steve Rowland and Jody and Billy and, you know, the whole team really learned the open source world. And it's an interesting world. It's hard to compete with free is the easy slogan, but when you start digging into it, there's some nuances to the business that you learn a ton around value-based selling and other stuff like that. After about two and a half years of data stacks, I went to another smaller company where I had an opportunity to learn from a, a legend. Uh, his name is Chris Lynch, was the CEO of Vertica, sold it to HP. He probably had four or five liquidation events, raised something like 50 or 60 million and turned it into a handful of billion. Really successful guy. And I jumped at the opportunity to learn from him. Rob Thomas and I, who you know is the was the GM of, of the Data and I business, has continued to stay in contact. Uh, when we started talking casually one day, no, with no intention of making a change about the opportunity to join me back, I jumped all over it. Like you know, Al, if if you kind of summarize the last ten minutes of me talking, there's ten years of analytics followed by ten years of data. The idea of coming to a company like IBM and to marry the two and be the you know worldwide sales leader for data and analytics. Like, I, I feel like it's my dream job and 130 days in, I still feel like that there's no place else I'd rather be. By the way, my favorite Buffett quote is, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. But what excites you about the IBM strategy right now? You come back, you've got analytics, you got data. Yeah, so, you know, at, at the headline level, when I was 
with data stacks, um, one of the things we really push is this idea of hybrid cloud. And the narrative would go like this with the customer. You'd say to the customer, hey, what, what's your a leader, at, you know, a CIO or CTO at a, at a major enterprise company? And you say to them, so what's on your mind? Like, what's, what are you focused on? They say, we're all in on the cloud. You say, awesome, that's great. And then you say, well, what does that mean? They say, well, any new workload, we're bringing it to the cloud. You say, well, what about the legacy stuff? And they say, oh, no, 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 never, right? That, that's, that stuff staying put on premise and quickly learn that when people say all in on the cloud, it really becomes this hybrid world where there's some on cloud, there's some on premise. And really the most difficult part isn't the data movement. The cloud companies, IBM, Microsoft, Amazon have made it really easy to get the data in. Getting it out, a little bit different story when you start realizing the cost effectiveness of running queries, different story, right? You start learning things, but getting in is very simple. The hardest part of the migration is the application layer. Being able to take applications with logic that's been written for 20 years and being able to uh, apply it to that moving data, the shifting data, that's the trick. So, you know, at scale in a way, they solved it, really focused on one part of the equation. There's some really great stuff. But if you think about where IBM is, like IBM is probably the only uh, vendor or offerer of, of technology products in the space that has the breadth of things across what we call the AI ladder. So the first thing that got me really excited about is Rob's concept of journey to AI. Thinking about it in terms of the four rungs, collect your data, you organize your data, you analyze your data, then you infuse that analytics into your process. I think there's very few companies on this planet that can deliver that breadth of capabilities the way that IBM can for the enterprise customers. And it's a big difference. You know, the I, I like to joke, the software is only a third of the success of a project. And you could probably attest to this in your role as, you know, delivering these projects. A third is the software, a third is the implementation and deployment, and a third is executive support to get or sponsorship to get use cases on board. Uh, so it's not just about the technology, it's about IBM's capabilities across software, across consulting, the vision and the breadth of the offering, I think is second to none, and really, I think, aligned and very relevant to where the industry is going. Yes, talking my language, I like it. So let's role play here a bit. You know, I have a business, let's say I'm a bank, I have tons of data. Some of it's good, some of it's a swamp. I can get some of it, you know, it's in pockets. I've got some good analytics. I got some poor analytics where I can't get information and get the reporting or visualization that I need. I want to move to cloud. I need to get there, but man, that, that costs money. And I do want to retire the legacy systems, but I depend on the le legacy systems. They're mission critical. I, I want to move from spending money to saving money to spending money to making money, if that makes sense. I'm intrigued with AI, but I have so much work to do, man. And I'm worried about the return on investment. Maybe I should let somebody else go first on the AI spectrum. What do you say to me? What, what does IBM have to offer? So what I would say to customers is start small and just make progress. And, you know, you don't need to get everything perfect, but it's good to have an end state in mind and start with a bunch of different things along the way, like smaller bite-sized chunks, knowing that probably half of them, if not 70% of them are going to fail. It's the 30% that you're going to get right that you got to figure out how do you scale that out and repeat that and start making that you know um, all over the organization. Your point about moving to the cloud, I've seen this many times. Companies underestimate that the legacy products, things like the data warehouse or their ETL tool, there's a reason that they're really rich in capability and there's a reason that they've been around for so long and continue to thrive, right? Despite the 
you know, the promised demise over the last two or three years. The reason is because most of the cloud today has been a movement of data. When you start getting into BI and you start getting into like real application workloads, there's a reason that people aren't moving off traditional stuff. And, you know, part of it is there's a stall, right? Part of it is that, you know, the performance is not the same on the cloud. The the, uh, the cost of analytic, if you look at the cost of a specific query, is not the same on the cloud as it is on-premise. You can't control it. You can't govern it. You can't infuse analytics and make it simple where you own the IP. These are all challenges on uh, moving to the cloud. They're all valid. I think there's different types of data strategies or AI strategies that you're going to employ for different workloads. There's room for everything. So uh, I'm not anti-cloud. I, I actually think the cloud has got a really important part. It changes the economics of many things, especially when you think about it. a typical software purchase. If $10 is spent Two or three of it is spent on software. Eight of it is spent on infrastructure and hardware. It's not just about the software investment cost. And if you can move to a true IaaS, cloud-based IaaS, or even a, a true SaaS offering, you know the economics are drastically different if that's the right workload for you. I would say don't be scared and don't put all your eggs in one basket. Like Diversify. Don't wait for perfection. Just go with what you have. Figure out a few use case-driven things that have a, a business sponsor with business outcomes. And why IBM? You mentioned like hybrid cloud. You mentioned, hey, you've got the full ladder to AI. But look, I mean, it, IBM can be overwhelming. Uh, and perception is not always the cheapest place to, to head towards. Again, going back to, you know, how should I get started? And why really should I consider having IBM solution this for me? First, the software is second to none. The whole IBM strategy is built on winning the platform. And what we mean by that is, you know, IBM just spent a ton of money on Red Hat. And with Red Hat comes containerized platform in OpenShift. So being able to containerize a rich set of product features, just something that's nobody else can offer. That's one. Two is the skills and the expertise of our people is amazing. It's fantastic. I would argue we probably have the best individual knowledge and skills of people on this planet. So being able to not just take this excellent software delivered through OpenShift, but having people who know how to deploy the product, know financial services, can speak the language of our customers, not just the expert labs people within the software group, but also being able to have access to GBS and other parts of IBM gives us a really unequal opportunity, right? Something that's, that you can't really find from other people. So I think it's a rich combination of the software the power of the people and just, you know, the vision, the where this is all going to go. I really do believe one of the biggest issues is thinking about the day two problem. But when you're implementing software, you know, it's not just about picking a best of breed solution or point solution. What's going to happen when you have to wire it all together? And when one product goes to an upgrade and no longer is compatible with something else, if you're dealing with a bunch of different vendors, you start living with the day two problem of how do you stitch it all together? How is it truly a platform? To your question now, like if you're a bank, do you want to be in the business of stitching everything together and be IT? Or do you want to rely on a partner like IBM, who's been here for over 100 years, going to be here for another 100 years, and really based on rich functionality, deliver as a platform to our customers and making it simple to use? I really think that IBM, in terms of vision and ability to execute, is by far across the entire AI portfolio, is a strong number one. I think there's a distant number two, and that space is just continuing to get bigger. Let's pivot now and talk about value selling. I want to start with a game. I mentioned this book, The Challenger Sell. Have you read that book? I did, The Five Profiles of Sellers. I'm a big believer. I have actually uh, taken several of 
the findings and kind of observations of the book and incorporate it into what I do every day. You're going to get this game right. Because I was going to say, you know, Gardner did a study. They have the five different profiles. What is the percentage of high performers in complex sales by profile that are successful? Now, the five profiles are lone wolves, relationship builders, problem solvers, hard workers, and challenger sellers. All right. So I'm sure you know the top one. Is the name of the book, Challenger Seller. Of right? course. 54% of high performers in complex sales are, are challengers. That's what I know you to be. See if you can name the other ones. Who, who do you think the next one? It's either going to be lone wolves, relationship builders, problem solvers, or hard workers. I'm going to go with problem solvers, number two. Number two is lone wolves. I know the challenger was the top. I, yeah. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. I know relationship is in the middle. The, the two and three got me a little bit. So you did get me. All right. Good to know. That. Lone wolf. But I think it just proves the point of the value selling. So the first one is challenger sale. Second one is lone wolves, 25%. Hard workers, 10%. Problem solvers, 7%. And relationship builders, 4%. So the relationship is actually at the bottom. The challenger sale, which can be the most uncomfortable that I've seen you firsthand succeed in. I want to talk to your philosophy. Call it whatever you will, value selling or whatever. What is your philosophy? What is your key to success? What are your principles that you drive in selling? So I'm actually going to go back 20 years because I think this is where it got defined. And there was another book uh, that was probably the precursor of the challenger seller called uh, Solution Selling, which uh, if anybody hasn't uh, read, I'm sure you could get it really cheap these days. Uh, fantastic book. And they, they talk about three stages of any sales cycle. It's the first stage is all around understanding vision and kind of getting vision lock. The second is being able to align your solution to that vision. And third is just managing all the risk that comes up at the end of, of a sales pursuit, referenceability and just deployment plan and all the things the customer's thinking about at that point to what is standing in the way of them actually achieving the, the value proposition that they originally signed up for now at the point that they believe in. I'm actually a technical salesperson or pre-sales person in a salesperson's body here. My core is still goes back to starting with the consultative sale. And, you know, I, I use a doctor analogy as probably the primary kind of function or go to market. And what I mean by that is there's a, a sales proverb or all pre-sales proverb that says, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Even though you could be a challenger, I think it starts by really being curious, like really understanding what are the challenges that are, are being had? But, you know, I, I think it takes a little more work than that. It's, it's coming in with a point of view and doing some research prior. Like if that's research, there's so much information that's available now that w even 20 years ago wasn't available. 10Ks and, you know, Google searches and being able to see LinkedIn and, you know, what are the background and how do people get to where they're going? Ultimately, what the philosophy is that big problems don't move organizations. Like people move organizations and people by their own psychology or their preferences and wants, you know, want to be able to do right and they want to make a difference. So I think the key of any salesperson has to be identifying the right power that's got the right problem and then putting together the right process or getting them to see what the vision could be for solving that problem, what the value would be in the business outcomes. So it sounds easy in words and I'm sure everybody would agree with that. I don't think anybody would disagree that it's better to start with a customer's problem than start with a product. The execution of it is a little challenging, right? You you have to think about the ratio, how much you're talking versus how much you're listening. You have to think about high yield questions. You, you really differentiate yourself by being able to probe almost, you know, if you think of Howard Stern in, in the United States as probably one of the, the greatest interviewers, 
it's not the stories he tells, which are really good. It's, it's his questions, his sincerity, the authenticity of his questions and how he really probes at the core issue. That's what a seller has to do. Have that curiosity, ask the right questions, don't make statements, like, you know, really get to the heart of something and understand it before you start to figure out a way to solve it. How do you stay on to value versus getting trapped into price? Price is just a function of the value, right? Meaning there's no reason to talk about price until you establish value. And and I don't mean that as like a threat to say, you know, some people say, give me the price. And, you know, you say, well, I can't do that until we establish value first. Uh, some people do that. Like, you know, I, I think it depends on the market you're in and, you know, the, the price point you're in and, you know, if it's a, a volume game or a, a profitability game. The trick is to say that there's a time and a place for everything and you're trying to help somebody. So there's nothing wrong with sharing kind of some budgeting price so that you're not wasting the customer time or your own time up front. But then from that point on, you really got to focus on, okay, we're relatively in the right ballpark. Let's talk about the business problem. Let's talk about the consequences of that business problem. What are the business outcomes that are impacted by it? And then how do you quantify that for a customer? And quite frankly, like part of my, going back to what you started with, Al, about you not talking and me talking, like I believe firmly that if a customer doesn't see the business value in what you're achieving, they shouldn't buy it. They shouldn't buy it. And that goes across any dimension. And, you know, I think having that stance when you're entering into negotiation, if there's not value for the customer, they should not move forward with the deal, right? They shouldn't buy it. Like spend your time and your money on something else. So it really starts with just getting agreement that you're in a problem that's significant, trying the best you can to quantify what that would be, and then anchoring on that business value and then coming up with a price that's fair. What I found is that most customers, when you come to that framework of being shoulder to shoulder, as opposed to nose to nose, meaning you're solving their problem and their problem has benefit to them, I find most customers are reasonable and say, you know what, you should partake in my upside and I have no problem giving you this value or this cost for your software and your solutions because the benefit that I'm going to achieve is significant and I won't do it without you. What kind of skill set do you feel the, the best sellers have and how do you maintain or promote that skill set? Favorite things that I learned is around identifying the right people. And Steve Rowland was a big uh, impactor of that in my time at Datastax. And what he taught me was that you, you really separate two things. There's DNA that people either have or they don't have. They're born with it or they're not. And then there's skills. And skills are things that you pick up. So in the sales profession, an example of DNA would be do you work with integrity? Do you have curiosity? Are you a challenger? Those are just some examples and they're weighted differently. Like some things like integrity, do I trust you're not going to steal from me? Uh, that's table stakes. Things like being a curious, you either have it or you don't, right? Either somebody wakes up in the morning and started digging into a, a problem or they don't. Skills, on the other hand, would be examples like uh, territory management, executive presentation skills, like how do you negotiate a deal? Even if you're not born a great negotiator, you can ultimately learn that stuff and be really effective at it. And there's tons of examples for it. When I look for salespeople, the people who are really exceptional, and there's a great uh, book written called Strength Finder 2.0, which if anybody hasn't read, uh, I would suggest it for this specific case, is that you know what you really want to find is the interception of exceptional people. So what happens when you have somebody on your team that doesn't or isn't achieving quota, how do you bring them back in line? How do you encourage them? I mean, it's a tough environment out there right now. So what do you do? Part of it is, you know, you got to make sure you're, you're hiring right, which means you've got to have the right profile of who's going to work and who's not going to work. And sometimes you're going to take risks. When you hire someone and you put them in the role, 
uh, you got to give them the right skills, right? You, you got to make sure that they're clear on on the strategy and what their mission is. You got to make sure that they have clarity on their territory. How are they going to get paid? You got to make sure that it's consistent. It's a two-way relationship of trust where the person trusts you as an organization and a leader, and you trust the person to do what's right, to have some sense of autonomy. So those are all kind of table stakes, right? Or, or basics that everybody's going to have as they deploy. When you get into it, you know, you start taking skills and you start getting into execution. You know, unfortunately, not everybody is aligned for the job at hand. And what I would say is sales is a broad topic, but there's very different kinds of sales. There's some sales that are volume-based sales. There's some sales that are very high touch, low volume sales. There's things that are advanced technology. There's things that are kind of more mature products. And all of those characteristics have different types of profiles of sellers. And just because you're good at one doesn't mean you're going to be translating to good at other places. And sometimes you work in a specific culture that has one way that might not translate over. So when somebody's struggling, you know, the reality is it's not fair for the organization. And it's not fair for the person. And a lot of times what I find is by taking them head on, there's a sense of relief from the person because they know they're not doing well. There's a saying that's a little bit abrupt, but it says, if you can't change the person, then you got to change the person. And I think it's fair for both people, like to give them the right skills, give them the right autonomy, align them on purpose, and then figure out a management system where you're measuring them. And when things aren't working, you got to have candid conversations and hopefully things improve. But if not, you know, sometimes you got to make some hard decisions about changing people up. Ayal, you are a joy to talk to, man. This is fun. And I want to be conscious of your time. There's so much more I wanted to ask. We'll have you on for a part two. I wanted to ask more on how you use data. I mean, you're a data guy, I know. So I wanted to ask, how do you use data in the sales process itself? I mean, almost how we eat our own cooking. I wanted to ask you what you think the future will bring. I do want to wrap up here and be, again, conscious of time. Appreciate you listening to the podcast. I got a couple other things I really want to wrap up with. It'll be quick. We'll play a quick game as we end. What do you really want people to know? What either about IL or about business, about sales? I mean, what, what's your last parting thought? I've always tried to keep it real. And I feel really humbled and honored to not only be in my role, but also to be invited to speak here. You know, the way I look at my role is uh, I'm an aggregator, right? I'm a, if things are moving in the wrong direction, I change the trajectory to make sure that everybody collectively is moving in the right direction. If anybody's interested in me and kind of how this all fits together, the way I would look at it is I'm all about the we, and the we is broader than sales. We is making sure that we're interacting with engineering, that we're interacting with marketing, that overall with our customers, with our customer success people, it's all about leaving things better than you found them and just really focusing on doing the right thing. Thank you for being here. I got a couple more things though, so bear with me. You had a music career? What, what were you doing around music? I always wish I had a musical bone in my body. I tried everything, by the way. I tried drums. I tried guitar and I tried it all. Didn't end well. So I, I ended up thinking I wanted to get into music. So I, I got one of those jobs. Kind of, If you've ever seen uh, Devil Wears Prada, where uh, you get a job where they always say, you know, there's 600 people wanting this job and you should feel lucky you got it. So I, I, when I was younger, I got a job working for uh, Geffen Records, which was wow. uh, one of the big labels. And it was, a, it was a short job and, you know, it was a, a fantastic experience. The problem was... I was living at home and not making a lot of money and all I wanted to do was lease a car and I couldn't do it. So I ended up going for a more lucrative career outside of music, uh, which I think looking back was the right decision. But I think if you ask me now, money aside, what I would do, family travel aside, there's still a spot of me that would love to be a, uh, a manager for some pop rock band like Britney Spears manager if she's still touring. Wow. But that's uh, always been a dream of mine. 
Well, I'd love to play music, but there's only so many times I can play Blackbird on my uh, guitar before I, I've got to learn another song. <laughs> if you invite me back, we should have some time aside for us to hear your, your Blackbird rendition. All I think right, very be, good. We'll, we'll do good. that. Hey, what do you do for fun, though, man? So I travel quite a bit in my role. So when I'm sitting on the plane, I'll, I'll be listening to 80s hip hop, some Grateful Dead, some jam band stuff, even some reggae, and it kind of a, a pretty diverse uh, palette. When I'm at home, Saturday, Sunday mornings are reserved for the kids. We fire up uh, Alexa, and she starts playing whatever's on, and pancakes from scratch, and spending time with the kids and the wife, and you know that's the joy when uh, not traveling. Do they have the musical bone that you don't have? My youngest is really into all the Disney cartoon songs, so I, I wouldn't consider that the same thing. She's still developing her own song. So yeah, I, I think I uh, picked up more from my wife's side, not my side. All right, one last thing, really quick. This is Would You Rather. I got to I gotta see what side of the fence you fall on. East Coast, West Coast? East Coast. Whiskey or beer? Oh, can I go tequila? I'll go, I'll go whiskey over in the choice, but tequila would be my, my drink of choice. All right, no, that's fair. Sass or on-prem? SAS. Data virtualization or data lake? Uh, hands down, data virtualization. Strong capital data virtualization. Seven days a week. Thank you for being here. This was a great discussion. I thoroughly enjoyed it. We will get you on for a part two because I may only a third through the questions, man. This will be you know, I, I, I think just for the uh, free bird promise that I heard you made <laughs> earlier, we're going to do it just for that. Uh, Al, really thank you. Thank you. I'm again humbled to be on. I really enjoyed it myself. You know, look forward to the invite to come back. Let me know okay. when. Sounds good. Now I've really got to perfect <laughs> Blackbird. <laughs> oh, Blackbird. Right. I'm sorry. I thought we could do both. We'll do both. Yeah, Blackbird, Blackbird, Beatles. All right. Hey, thank you guys for listening. As always, we appreciate it. Any comments, uh, questions, comments, concerns, please hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Until then, we'll see you on the podcast. Thanks again. See you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, Let's go over and out. Oh.